You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is our 12th and final lecture on logic for the International Catholic University. And in this last lecture, we're going to be talking about rhetoric and the poetics. In the first 11 lectures, we looked at the treatises of Aristotle's Organon, which belong to logic taken in the strict sense of the term. Logic as the art which directs reason in coming to know the truth. But we also said there is a looser sense of the term logic in which logic broadly understood is the art simply that directs the actions of reason. Now, sometimes we reason about human actions. Rhetoric directs our reason when it considers moral and political actions. Reason also acts in poetry, imaginative literature, to produce a beautiful and delightful product. The science of poetics discusses those actions of reason. So today's lecture will focus on these sciences as discussed by Aristotle in his books, The Rhetoric and the Poetics. Now, we're studying these two subjects first because they complete our consideration of logic. Our study of logic needs to be completed by rules to guide reason in more practical affairs, but also because some of the tools of reasoning which are most appropriate to rhetorical and poetical speech, are also helpful for philosophy and theology. So in this lecture, I'm going to look at rhetoric and poetics, not just for their own sake, but also to consider those tools which they have, which we can use in our philosophical and theological studies. There are going to be three of these tools, two of them from rhetoric, the enthymeme and the argument by example, the third from the poetics, the metaphor. So let's break up our discussion today into two parts. First, we're going to talk about those main rhetorical tools, the enthymeme and the example. Second, we're going to talk about the poetical tool, metaphor. Now, in our discussion of the enthymeme and the example, we're going to first take a broad overview of the subject of rhetoric, then we're going to focus on the tools themselves. Now, rhetoric differs from dialectic because the dialectician is aiming remotely at some sort of knowledge, but the rhetorician is not primarily interested in coming to know, he's interested in persuading his audience. And he doesn't want to simply persuade them to hold a certain opinion. He wants to persuade them to act upon this opinion. Now, since the rhetorician is trying to persuade many people, and not just the few wiser people, he's going to use logical tools which are more understandable to many, more understandable to the beginner in reasoning, though they are often tools which are much less certain. But here's the good thing. Precisely because they're more understandable, 
they can be very useful for the beginner in philosophy. Philosophy is a difficult subject. If we use tools that are easy to use, we can help the beginner, or if we are the beginner ourselves, we can make progress more easily. True, we make progress with less certainty, but with the guidance of good teachers like Aristotle and St. Thomas, we don't have to worry too much at the beginning about certainty. We must worry about understandability. In fact, Aristotle and St. Thomas themselves often use these tools, as uncertain as they are, in order to help the beginner make progress in philosophy and theology. Now, Aristotle does not define the enthymeme and argument by example. He simply says that an enthymeme is a rhetorical syllogism and an example is a rhetorical induction. But he goes on to compare and contrast the enthymeme and the syllogism, the example with the induction. So we're going to follow his lead. We're going to look at how the enthymeme and example are like syllogism and induction, respectively. Then we'll look at their differences. And finally, we'll offer something that's like a definition of each one. Now, when we talked about the syllogism, we said that every syllogism has to have at least one universal premise, one universal proposition. It was only because at least one of the propositions is universal, at least one of the predicates was said of all of its subject, or said of none of its subjects, that any sort of necessary reasoning could take place at all. And from that universal premise, a less universal conclusion is often drawn. So, the following is a typical syllogism. Every animal has sense desires. Some living things are animals. Therefore, some living things have sense desires. The syllogism begins with a universal statement, every animal has sense desires, but ends with a more particular conclusion, some living things have sense desires. Now, just as the syllogism begins from a proposition which is more universal, and concludes to one that's less universal, so also the enthymeme begins with a proposition that's more universal, concludes to something less universal. The following is an example of an enthymeme. The harder good is the better good, but virtue is a harder good thing to acquire than pleasure. Therefore, virtue is a better good than pleasure. This begins with a more universal proposition. The harder good is the better good, and concludes to a more particular proposition. Virtue is a better good. So, the enthymeme and the syllogism are alike because both begin with the more universal, proceed to the more particular. Example is going to be like induction. First, let's consider an induction. Fido barks, Spot barks, Rover barks, therefore all dogs bark. Let's notice, an induction, unlike the syllogism, begins with something that's particular, that's individual, and ends with a universal statement. The same is going to be true about the example. Aristotle gives us the following instance of an argument by example. 
He writes, In the past, Pesistratus asked for a bodyguard in order to make himself a despot. And so did Theogenes at Megara. And in the same way, all other instances known to the speaker in which a ruler asked for a bodyguard, he desired to become a despot. Therefore, when Dionysius now asks for a bodyguard, he has the same purpose, to become a despot. That's an instance of the rhetorical use of an argument by example. The speaker is trying to persuade the people that Dionysius wants to become a despot, and he uses the following argument. When Pesistratus wanted to become a despot, he asked for a bodyguard. When Theogenes wanted to become a despot, he asked for a bodyguard. Dionysius is now asking for a bodyguard. It must be because he wants to become a despot. Notice this, that just as in the induction, the argument by example begins with individual cases. It begins with listing various particular individual statements. So those are the likenesses that enthymeme has with syllogism and that argument by example has with induction. Now let's look at the differences. First of all, the enthymeme differs from the syllogism because the enthymeme begins with a premise which, while more universal than its conclusion, is not in fact completely universal, but is only mostly true. Aristotle writes it this way, Now the materials of enthymemes are probabilities. A probability is a thing that usually happens. It bears the same relation to that in respect of which it is probable as the universal bears to the particular. Now what Aristotle is saying is that the enthymeme differs from the syllogism because a syllogism always has at least one completely universal premise. Even the dialectical syllogism begins from a premise which is completely universal. The premise may be false, but it's universal. In contrast, the enthymeme starts from a probability, a premise which is fairly but not completely universal. It's a premise in which something is said to be true for the most part, but not all of the time. And since the premise is not completely universal, the conclusion of the enthymeme does not necessarily follow from the premises. Now, we can look back on the example we gave before. We said that the harder good is the better good. Virtue is a harder good than pleasure, therefore virtue is a better good than pleasure. But that first premise, the harder good is the better good, is only a probability. It's true for the most part, but there are some exceptions. There are some cases in which we should do the easier thing. The better thing is the easier, not the harder thing. Now, that kind of premise doesn't have the universality needed to be a principle of a syllogism, but it is the appropriate material for an enthymeme which has a conclusion that is less certain than that of a syllogism. So maybe we could paraphrase Aristotle's definition of a syllogism to apply to an enthymeme. An enthymeme is speech in which a certain fairly universal premise being given 
something else probably follows from it. Now that's how an enthymeme differs from a syllogism. An example, argument by example, also differs from induction. We could sum up the difference in this way. An induction proceeds from a particular or an individual case to make a universal conclusion. The argument by example starts from one particular or individual case to move to another particular or individual case. The following example makes it clear. We said Pesistratus asked for a bodyguard in order to become a despot. So did Theogenes. Those are two statements about individuals. Now what is the conclusion that the speaker draws from this? We conclude that Dionysius asks for a bodyguard in order to become a despot. Once again, the conclusion is a statement about an individual. That's always true about the argument by example. We always go from one particular or individual statement to conclude another particular or individual statement. We could sum up the two tools of rhetorical reasoning this way. The enthymeme is a process of reasoning which begins with what is true for the most part and reaches a more particular conclusion. The argument by example is a process of reasoning which begins with particular premises and ends with a particular conclusion. Neither of them can ever conclude with necessity, but both are fairly easy for anyone to comprehend and are good tools for the beginners in theology and philosophy. We might ask, why is it that the enthymeme is easier to understand? Why is it that the argument by example is easier to understand? I think we would point to this principle, which is a very important principle, I think not just for logic, but for all Thomistic philosophy. And that is that our knowledge naturally begins with the senses. And the senses perceive the concrete individual. So what's easier for us to understand is what is closer to the concrete individual. Now that's precisely what happens in the argument by example. In the argument by example, we start with the concrete individual and we end with the concrete individual. It's very easy for us to understand. And even in the enthymeme, it's easier to understand because we don't require a kind of seeing into the nature of a thing or even a pretense of seeing into the nature of a thing that's required by a universal proposition. All we have to do is say, this is what mostly happens. And we can see that something mostly happens simply through experience of concrete particular instances. So both the enthymeme and the argument by example are easier for us to understand, easier for us to use than the syllogism and the induction because they're closer to the concrete. They make very good tools for the beginners in theology and philosophy. That's all we're going to say about rhetoric and about the tools that rhetoric uses. We have one more thing to talk about, and that's poetics and the tools used by the poet. 
Now the tool used by the poet is the metaphor. Of course, the book, The Poetics, is often studied in literature courses because it's a theory about how imaginative literature works. So we're going to skip all that stuff about the definition of tragedy and the catharsis of fear and pity and just focus on the metaphor, the tool which is going to turn out to be useful in theology. Now, this is how Aristotle defines the metaphor in his poetics. Metaphor is giving a name to something that does not belong to it, but belongs to another thing. Shakespeare gives a very famous example of a metaphor in Romeo and Juliet. He says, But soft what light through yonder window breaks. It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. That is, Shakespeare gives the name sun to Juliet. Juliet is the sun. Now, that name does not really belong to Juliet, of course. Sun is a metaphor for Juliet. And I think we could say this. The reason Juliet is called the sun by Romeo is because just as the sun is necessary for life on earth, so Juliet is necessary for Romeo's life, as the rest of the play bears out. What can we say then about how a metaphor works? A metaphor gives a name that belongs to one thing to another. A metaphor occurs in a statement that, literally speaking, is false. But it can help us to understand something because it points to a likeness between two things. And likeness is always a principle that helps our understanding make progress. We can put it this way. A metaphor points out and makes known to us a surprising likeness between unlike things. The poet uses the metaphor because it's surprising and therefore pleasant. Surprising things are pleasant. We like it when Romeo calls Juliet the sun because we're surprised that there's a likeness between the sun and this girl. Holy Scripture, however, also uses metaphors. Now, why does it use metaphors? Not to give us pleasure, necessarily. That's the job of the poet. But because the metaphor can make something known to us by pointing out a surprising likeness between things. The scriptural metaphor points out a likeness between the creatures that we understand fairly well and the God who is so hard to understand. Now, just as Romeo calls Juliet the sun, scripture will call God a rock. Just as, literally speaking, the statement Juliet is the sun is false, so literally speaking, the statement, God is a rock, is false. But the author of Scripture wants to convince us, using this metaphor, that like a rock, God has a kind of stability, a permanence, an endurance. And so the writer of Scripture makes known to the reader something about the nature of God using a metaphor which points out a likeness between God and creatures. Now, this is an important point. St. Thomas, in his Summa Theologica, brings up an objection against the use of metaphor in Scripture. He says that since metaphor is used by the lowest process of reasoning, the poetical process, 
and theology is the highest process, theology should not use the same tool as the poetic, as the poet uses. But his answer is that theology and poetry have a likeness to each other. Theology treats about things that are outside of the normal course of human reason because they're so high. Whereas poetry treats about the things that fall below human reason and are more at the level of the senses. But they both treat of something outside of reason and therefore both use the same tool to make those things that are outside of reason more known to reason. So, metaphor is not a bad thing for scripture to use, it's a good thing. Finally, I'd like to talk about the difference between metaphor and analogy. We might be tempted to confuse the two, but they differ in two ways. First, when I use a term analogously, the term is the same, it has two different meanings. But when I use a term metaphorically, the term is the same and it has the same meaning. When I use the term analogously, the name actually belongs to the thing. For example, we've said that rhetoric is part of logic in one meaning of the term logic and not part of logic in another meaning of the term. Two meanings of the term logic, but both statements, that rhetoric belongs to logic and rhetoric does not belong to logic, are true, given the meanings. But when we say Juliet is the sun, the word sun retains its first and only meaning. The predicate does not truly belong to the subject, although the statement may point to some true likeness between Juliet and the sun, between the things compared. So there are these two differences. Analogy, there are two meanings. In metaphor, there's only one. In analogy, the statement is true. In metaphor, the statement is literally false. We've talked now about three tools of the lesser parts of logic, the enthymeme, the argument by example, and the metaphor. Now, though these tools are very weak tools and don't yield us a lot of certainty, they're still very important to us. Perhaps we could say, almost more necessary than the syllogism because of the weakness of the human mind. The human mind needs weak arguments like these before it can use stronger ones. So I'd like to finish by talking about what I hope that you can get from this logic course. There are three reasons, I think, why this logic course is important. First, I think from this course, you're going to have some understanding of what the philosophers and theologians are talking about when they use logical terms. When they talk about definition, genus, and specific difference, perhaps before the course you weren't sure what that meant. Now you do. When St. Thomas talks about names being used analogously of God and creatures, before you might not have had much idea of what he was talking about. Now you do. Perhaps before you didn't know what a syllogism was. Now you do these things are going to help you understand theology and philosophy. But I hope that you can do more with this logic. I hope you're able to use some of these logical tools to understand the philosophers and theologians. That is, you don't really understand a philosophical text unless you see how the words are being used, whether they're being used in one or many senses, how those senses are related to each other, what the statements mean precisely, 
how they're opposed or related to each other, and what kind of argument the philosopher or theologian is using. Is he using a syllogism that's meant to give us a completely certain proof? Or is he simply using an enthymeme to give us a start towards the truth? For example, when St. Thomas comments on Aristotle, he often indicates exactly what kind of logical tool Aristotle's using. He says, first, Aristotle gives a syllogism. Second, he gives an argument by example. Third, he gives an enthymeme. So I think with what you've learned in this course of logic, you'll be able to at least start using those logical tools in your reading. Finally, I think that if you do the exercises that go along with this course, and get some practice in finding and using these logical tools, your own thinking and writing will be improved. You will not only write and think with more force and certainty, but you'll write in such a way that you'll use the lesser tools to help the beginner to acquire more knowledge. Writing and teaching logically will make you a better teacher. With that, I'd like to finish by thanking you for your attention and thanking the International Catholic University for giving me this opportunity to speak to you about logic. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.